Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. Where, along with my partners, Ann and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. So last Sunday, around 2.30 in the afternoon, I'm hanging out on our screened-in porch with my family, enjoying a beautiful Jersey quarantine Sunday, and my phone rings. I see who it is, and I tell everyone, guys, I'm going to take this outside. It's Eddie Munster. (laughs) Now, I've never stopped being a kid. Even as an adult, the kid in me still shows up usually once a day. And when I remember my childhood, as much as I love my family, my youth from, let's say, age 8 to 12, especially some of my favorite memories came from two of my passions that I still love today, music and television. And no matter what was going on in my life at school or with my friends or being bullied, whatever was happening at the end of the day, honestly, I just wanted to be entertaining or to be entertained. And one of my earliest and favorite memories of watching television came from this unusual but really perfectly normal family that lived at 1313 Mockingbird Lane. So today we take a little pause from business and money. And although both are very much a part of this world too, trust me, and we'll talk about it. I have the great honor of welcoming to the show that fun-loving kid with the green face. Now you only saw that when you see the show or the movie in color, The Widow's Peak and The Fangs, Butch Patrick. Hey, Butch. Hey, how are you, my friend? Thanks for having me on. Uh, Well, thank you so much, first, for being a part of not just my life, but my kids, and of course, for taking time to chat with us today. So last week, as we continue to struggle with the global pandemic and now social injustice, I shared one of my favorite Munster clips where Herman, played by truly one of the great actors of his day, maybe of all time, Fred Gwynn, provides words of wisdom about tolerance in 1965 and teaches his son, Butch Patrick, young Eddie Munster, a very memorable lesson. I'm going to quote the thing here. It doesn't matter what you look like. You can be short or tall or fat or thin or ugly or handsome like your father, or you can be black or white or yellow. It doesn't matter. What does matter is the size of your heart and the strength of your character. So here we are, 55 years later, Butch, roughly, maybe even 56. I guess that was episode was in 65. So 55 years later. How how amazing that this pep talk from the episode known as Eddie's Nickname, intended for you, it's a great episode, one of your favorite probably, is is finally resonating. This this must be a really special moment for you to, to see this as well. Well, yes, to answer your question. And another interesting factor about that particular episode, which led up to that final tag scene where we, you know, we recap the whole show was I had been bullied at school because I was short. And the whole purpose of the beard on my face was because I was supposed to grow six inches taller to not be bullied. So you had a double whammy there. You had uh, Eddie was being bullied. And then at the end of the show, Not only did he grow a beard, he was happy with being short and the beard came off and then the words of wisdom inspired by his dad. So it was a very poignant show and and pretty much timeless in its message. Yeah. I mean, do you um, I know it's hard to remember every episode, but since this has always been one of your favorites, do you specifically remember shooting that scene? Yeah, I do. And I'll tell you why I do. You got to imagine I'm an 11 year old kid with a full beard glued on for three days. And, oh, and true. it's like, you don't even shave 
And then to have this itchy beard stuck on your face for three <laughs> days, I remember it because at the end, they had taken the beard off and that beard that they applied was cotton candy because they needed something that would appear to be a beard, but, <laughs> would, dissolve, but that would dissolve in liquid. So the ever uh, resourceful uh, special effects department, I remember because the old beard came off. I mean, it, it would come off every night. They would take it off. They lay it on in the morning. But this was the last scene of the shoot because of the nature of the dissolving beard. They would have to redo it if it didn't work the first time. So I do re recall the, the whole process of rehearsing it to death and the words being very poignant and strong. And then the fact that I wouldn't, you know, what did you learn from this lesson? I won't ever make fun of mom's soup again. No. Yeah. <laughs> so no, is after that, when we leave the table to go put the dishes in the kitchen, grandpa comes up to Herman. Now they have always had this father-in-law and, you know, the son-in-law, father-in-law uh, combative relationship. And he comes up to him and taps him on the shoulder. And he says, Herman, he goes, you ain't perfect, but you're all right. You know, meaning that those were good words, my, my, you know, my son-in-law, you did good. Mm. Well, it was great writing and, and great writing throughout just about every episode there. And of course, these are the guys that were writing for Leave it to Beaver as well. And we'll yep. get into that. And, you know, this is just one example of how the Munsters were really so far ahead of their time. And why do you think, like, besides you know, that one scene, 55 years later, the Munsters are airing every day and are still a relevant part of society and daily conversations. I have my own particular spin on that. And I, I do believe it's the Munsters was a really well-produced show. It was done. You, you got to understand how the show came about on paper. It didn't look like it would ever see the light of day. If we read a script, Oh yeah. Oh, come on. Give me a break. So that in itself, the original Marilyn came out to do the pilot and her agents, you know, convinced her that you'll be back in New York by next week because she was in love with the guy in New York and she didn't want to go to the West coast and get stuck out there. But the agent convinced her, this is the worst show that's ever, you know, it's ever going to be made. You'll never be stuck out there. So even the agent in the first Maryland thought that it would be a failure. But what happened was, is two things occurred. Number one, universal studios was very, very good at making monster movies. They were the studio that did all the Dracula, Frankenstein, mummy, you Everything. name it. They were the monster studio. So they had a really good visual reference point of how they were going to make this series look. It was shot on film. It looked like little mini movies. Then you had the Leave it to Beaver crew, the producers and writers who created Leave it to Beaver, who had also done Amos and Andy, believe it or not, before that. Mm -hmm. So they had this very interesting, weird spin on stuff. So they took those roots and applied them to the Universal Monsters Frankenstein and adapted Bob Clampett, the animator who wanted to do lovable monsters back in the 40s as an animated contract and series. So they took all those elements and put them into this monsters and it turned out to be mixed it up in the, it's like, you know, mixing it up in, in grandpa's cauldron mm -hmm. and the result was magic. Mm. And, and one of the things that was so special is that throughout every episode of the monsters, it was always about treating everyone the same way. And I, I love this. And I think it's an interesting comparison. And I just happened to see an article where Aaron Murphy, who you probably know, Tabitha from Bewitched, which aired about the same time, started, I think, about the same time as the Munsters. And she recalled a similar episode on her show as well. Um, and, and I just think it's so fascinating that that these shows in the early 60s were really just just so far ahead of their time. And, and, and it's I'm not going to get into a whole thing about television, but I feel like it fell apart in the 70s and then it woke up again in many ways. An interesting thing, uh, a friend of mine who's a, a, a big Munsters fan, number one, a very successful producer out here in Hollywood, and he kind of explained to me something that I really wasn't aware of that made sense. He goes, the golden age of television, a lot of people think is the 50s, but it really isn't. Uh, the 50s were radio shows that were visual. Yes. They were pretty much adapted from radio into this new medium that people could see. Mm -hmm. But in the 60s, the sitcom grabbed hold and became a structured element of entertainment. And, and you got to remember, this was the entertainment box for the house. And right. the Munsters came on at 6.30. We were the first leadoff show on Thursday night, 6.30 Central, 
7 30 mm-hmm. eastern central and pacific time so you have people coming home from work the dinner is being served or it has been served right. either way <laughs> and now everybody's huddled around the television to see what they're going to watch and it used to be you know the tv guy used to be the bible people would get it and they look at it they mark off what they're going to watch and I remember night, like, it one well. kid might, might get wednesday night another kid might get thursday night and mm-hmm. you know dad would step in and say well i get friday night so it was this huge thing because right. everybody didn't have multiple tvs then it was strictly one tv per household was the norm and that's with no internet and no cable and no other diversions people were glued to their television set and 55 years later that's why these little shows these little upstart shows with only two seasons or three seasons in the in the can like star trek and gilligan's island and other shows of that nature have such a resonating deep memory in american culture and pop culture plus the 60s was the pop culture decade Absolutely. so you take the decade yeah. you take the monsters and you take talking horses martians genies and witches and you have these shows that were great comedy fodder for writers and and young i mean we had great comedians come through the monsters early in their careers we had a laundry list of A-listers. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I watched the Don Rickles episode, The Dance. Oh, the dancing. Dance with the dancing me. last night. Uh, I mean, just just classic. I love Rickles and had the opportunity to meet him. And Joyce Jameson. Larry. Was, yeah, was the exactly. Director, yeah, it'd be fantastic. So truth be told, your acting career didn't just begin with the Monsters. For people that no. aren't aware of that, this, you were already having a pretty incredible run. In fact, you just mentioned one of the shows, Mr. Ed. And I think you tell the story, you know, how, how you got your start, because it really is an incredible story. It's, it's, it's sort of another version of the, of the, the movie star at, uh, at Schwab's or whatever yeah. it was, you know. Yeah, a lot of, tur- lot of Turner. <laughs> yeah, but your, your story, I, 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 just, I just love it. So please, please tell people yeah. the story. Well, you know, I'm a big believer in the, the, the web of life and networking, and it started for me, you never know what each day is going to bring you, and this is a perfect example of, Regular kid going to school, living in a little city called Gardena, you know, about 20 miles south of Hollywood. My mom marries a gentleman who was an influential guy back in the day in California. They didn't have legalized gambling, but they had these poker rooms. So these poker rooms were very successful and people from all over the state would come down and and Dave was a big shot. And my sister was born and they wanted to get my dad's approval for this guy that wanted to be mayor of Gardena. So in their ultimate wisdom, they decided, how could they get they get on Dave's good side to get his endorsement? I know, we'll get his little girl into the movies and make him happy, you know, and he'll be so proud of his little daughter. That's <laughs> what we'll do. And we knew this agent, her name was Mary Grady, and she had just, you know, branched off to open up the Hollywood's first child agency. I go along for the ride for her photo shoot. I'm six years old. The guy, after he's done, looks over at me and he says, you know, I kind of like his look. Do you mind if I take a couple pictures just, you know, for my own stuff? No problem. He puts the picture that he took of me in the window of his studio, which happened to be on Hollywood Boulevard. Producer, Randy Hood, I mean, writer, George W. George, director, Randy Hood, walking by, look over. There happened to be in the middle of casting this little B-movie over 20th Century Fox, and they haven't finalized the final kid, the youngest kid yet. They've tracked me down through him. We go for an interview. They ask me if I've ever acted. I says, no, I was in a school play once. You know, I'm only in the second grade. Mm-hmm. And they go, okay, you got to start somewhere. My mom asked me, well, so you want to be in a movie? I go, well, I have to go back to school. She goes, no. I go, let's do it. So six weeks later, I have completed this movie with Eddie Albert and Jane Wyatt and Soupy Sales and Brenda Lee and all these cool people and Jimmy Boyd. And mm-hmm. so it was a great little experience, which got my feet wet, somewhat, so to speak. But during that six weeks, I did a Kellogg's Cornflakes commercial, which won an award. And then I also picked up a General Hospital. So within a month and a half, a movie, a series, and a commercial, and that's pretty much how it started. And the name of that movie, folks, is Two Little Bears, and it's 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 a really sweet movie. You know, it is. A, it's a great little movie, and <laughs> yeah. the fact that Brenda Lee was 15 years old, and, and it is, it was a great first effort. I couldn't have asked for a better movie to start the process because I was I was working with really good quality people, and it wasn't a. And we, and we were actually working with these two little bear cubs as well. I mean, these kids, I mean, who could have asked for a better star? Like, we get to hang around with bears. <laughs> you know, as, and as fate would have it, I think it was an uncle or somebody got you riding horses very young. Yeah. And suddenly, you become the kid on every Western. Yeah, my, uh, the closest thing we had to anybody in the movie business at that time was my dad, the poker club owner. His brother mm-hmm. had a ranch in Newhall. He actually married his wife, George's, her maiden name was Spawn. 
she was the old man Spawn's daughter, and the Spawn Ranch. Spawn Ranch. Next, yeah, and the Spawn Ranch was next door to the Lily Ranch, yep. and John supplied horses and Western props, and I would see him all the time. But you know, walking the horses up the hill to wagon train or the Virginia, and we would go out there for Thanksgiving every year, and uh, I did. I learned how to ride a horse. My other uncle was a jockey, so I, I would go to Hollywood Park at four thirty in the morning to see him exercise <laughs> horses, and I would be riding horses, but before I could actually ride a bicycle. And Spawn but, Ranch, for those who didn't see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, by the yeah. way, 10 years later, plays a very big part of that movie and, and sadly in the Charles Manson story. Yeah. But, you know, just interesting that you mentioned Spawn Ranch. Well, it's interesting. And that's one of the factors of when I was going about my life in the 60s. You know, I started off doing movies and then my mom married after Dave Lilly. They separated and got divorced. She married a guy who was a baseball player, a professional baseball player. Ken Hunt with the Angels. So mm -hmm. I had this really unique situation where I was either at the studio or going to the ballpark and spring training in Palm Springs and hanging around Gene Autry. And it was just wonderful. I mean, I, I couldn't have asked for a better childhood, not really appreciating it as kids don't until it's gone. And then, you know, the 60s led into the George Barris connection with the cars for the show, hanging around George Barris's shop, seeing the likes of Sinatra and Sonny and Cher and Elvis picking up their customs and me being able to hang around there as an equal because George loved the Munsters and he was really, he liked me and, and I was kind of like a kid that didn't have to be told to stay out of trouble because I knew what to touch and what not to touch. So mm -hmm. he kind of allowed me free reign. Mm -hmm. And when I had free time, the Universal Studios was my backyard. So imagine how much fun a kid could have going and poking around the greatest studio on earth and being able to go wherever he wants to go because everybody knows you're supposed to be there. Right. And they're shooting some of the great, you know, oh. greatest series of the time. If I recall, McHale's Navy was being shot at Universal then, right? Well, not only the series, we had, a, we had the Virginian, we had Wagon Train, we had right. McHale's Navy, we had Alfred Hitchcock, but mostly they were doing movies. And if you figure out any given time, there was a probably 12 to 14 movies being shot on the lot and they last about three months. So you got three months times four. So now you got 36 to 48 movies times two. So you got 72 to 96 movie starts while I'm out there. And mm -hmm. my favorite thing to do is to be going to sound stage as they were striking it and see what the next build was going to be inside and try to guess whether it's going to be a period piece medieval. Is it going to be Charlton Heston with a, with a bowl haircut as El Cid, <laughs> or is it going to be a, a, an Alfred Hitchcock movie or next door was, was they were doing torn curtain with Paul Newman and Lana Turner. It was, that was fun. That was what oh. I enjoyed doing. Absolutely. And and I want to mention, we'll get into this later, this this wonderful yeah. show that Butch is doing going around the country. But I happened to watch one of the episodes where your stepfather played a big role. And it was really fascinating that, yes, he played for, for the Yankees, but he was played for the Senators and he was yeah. the uh, – California Angels at the time drafted him in the in the yeah. in the draft and and had a tremendous season. I mean, I, I looked at the statistics were were fantastic. And yeah. he also had a friendship because he was on the Yankees with Roger Maris. And sadly, both died very young yeah. and they're buried next to each other. They are. I was up in Fargo earlier uh, last year. I had never been up to his gravesite, and for my coach to coast segments, uh, whenever I'm traveling, I'm only not only doing things for my fans and for the viewers, I'm also doing stuff for myself. So, yes, I went up to Fargo. It was interesting because I was actually, you know, I did an appearance there, and then I, I uh, went to all the Fargo things. But the but the <laughs> key point was to stop by and see Kenny's tombstone next to Roger Maris. And, you know, you can imagine these two, these two rural pals from different teams both getting drafted in the, in the mid to late 50s by the Yankees. I know. And one thing up in Yankee Stadium, you know, it's like you talk about bigger than life. I mean, this oh. is like over the top. And here they are, and Kenny goes to the Angels because of the expansion. He was uh, Mickey Mantle's roommate as well, and my brother's godfather is Moose Gowron, was, oh. mm -hmm. was Moose Gowron. So sure. it, was, it was great. Even though Kenny was father to my two little brothers, I was old enough to appreciate the father and son games and go to the clubhouse and hang out. And the fact that I was Eddie Munster made it easy for the ball players to come yeah. over and hand an autograph ball or here's mm -hmm. a glove to take home and – I reaped all the benefits out of it and uh, not appreciating uh, what it. A, what, a, what a wonderful time. And you know, like yeah. you said, and, and, and the last thing I wanted to mention about the Westerns is, you know, you, you got to work with Clint Eastwood, a very young yeah. Clint Eastwood in Rawhide. Rawhide. That must have been, you know, what, did he stand out? I mean, was it, was it something like, boy, that guy's really good, or this actor's really good? He had something about him that you could pretty much sense – uh, this guy's going to be around and there's going to be greatness. You're, you know, you're in the presence of greatness. It was like, but it's like when I met evil Knievel, you know, there's certain people that just kind of have this presence about them that you just, 
You can almost touch it. It's like an aura. And the one thing I want to mention before we get off the Westerns is mm -hmm. my Uncle John's nephew was stuntman for Zorro. Oh. And that, to me, when you're a kid that age, Zorro was all was over the over the top cool. Oh, of course, of course. What kind of schooling was going on? Because in doing my Munster research, I know that, you know, you, typically Monday through Wednesday might have been a read through. And then obviously the makeup was a big deal. So that only happened a couple days a week. But you were only on the set as needed. So what was the schooling situation like? I know you wound up going to middle school back in Illinois, but during your Munster years. Three hours a day, Monday through Friday, and uh, yeah, we filmed through. It was actually Monday. Monday was a very light reading in the office. Everybody went home by noon. Mm -hmm. uh, I went out to the soundstage and did my schooling until about. I was usually in school by about eleven. And I'd get out of there. I'd skip lunch and be out of there by two. Were there other um, child actors with you? Everybody's got to do that. Yeah, yeah. everybody's got to do that. Three hours. I mean, that's a rigid, rigid rule. And then, and another thing is that what they do is when you when they put you in the school, you've got to stay there for at least twenty minutes, or it doesn't count. So right. what they would do is they, you know, you'd go into a scene, block it, then they pull you out, slap you in school for they'd be watching the clock, nineteen minutes, twenty minutes, get them out, and then you'd run back and do your thing, and then they put you back in school because it wasn't there. There wasn't a lot of times when you were there for over an hour at a time. So it was kind of hectic, but uh, it was doable. And then Tuesday was a rehearsal day, which lasted until about two in the afternoon as well. So I was still there until two. It doesn't matter to me whether they're rehearsing or whether I'm in school. And then Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday were film makeup days. Mm. So an interesting thing is that you really only had one agent, as you mentioned. Yep. Uh, Old um, agent. Right, exactly. Um, um, whose son wound up being on My Three Sons, Don McGrady's mother, right? Mm -hmm. That that's and another another show that you appeared in. But I wanted to ask you a little bit. What was your understanding at the time? And I know this is so hard to go back. Maybe not so much seven, eight, but ten, eleven, twelve about being paid. I mean, did you even think about those things as a as yeah. a preteen, where your money was going and how who what they were doing with it? And I mean. Fortunately, there's the Jackie Coogan law, and we'll talk about that in a minute, which I've always thought is fascinating. And thank God that happened because people don't realize what a mess that was. But, mm -hmm. but for you, were you know, were, were you thinking about that, or could I have a little money now? I mean, you know, no, I was. Uh, I didn't ask for money. My my mom took pretty good care of me. I always, you know, if I needed a skateboard or a, or a stingray or a mini bike, it was it was pretty much there. I you know, I probably was spoiled a tad, but at the same time, I was working. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like, it wasn't like it was given to me. It was, I was earning it. And I knew that at an early age, but the main thing was I was, I was socking money away. I knew the money should be there for my race car career that I was planning right. on having. So when it was all said and done, you're supposed to wait till you're 21 to get your right. money. When I turned 18, I had a very low number in the lottery, which was the last year of the draft for Vietnam. Mm -hmm. I assumed that I was probably going to go to Vietnam and die. So on that note, I figured I'm never going to be able to drive my race car. So I'm going to petition the court to get my money out because they changed the voting law to 18 That's in this right. window. So when I turned 19, they changed the voting law to 18. I went and petitioned the court and I was the first person to get the law changed to allow kid actors to get their money out early, which hmm. probably was a mistake <laughs> in hindsight. Well, but, but it, it also kept me, you out of a, a war. You, you I, know, you... I then took that money and I went and bought Corvettes and went to the beach. And when I finally went up for my induction, this all happened within about a six month window. When I went up for my induction, they found my right knee had suffered an injury to a skiing accident and I wasn't, I wasn't fit for service. So they gave me a one H deferment. Hmm. So that was kind of strange because now I'm not going to Vietnam, but I've already gotten the money out of the bank and I've already blown through half of it. Yeah. Having a great time. I have no complaints. Well, there was nobody teaching. I mean, this is this is a problem, not just with child actors. It's a problem yeah. in America. And I, I, I go on my high horse about financial yeah. literacy. It's never taught in schools anywhere. And, and it's something now that in, in where I live in New Jersey, I was part of a group of people that got that pass that you don't graduate high school without a class in financial literacy. But, you know, it wasn't something that your agent was going to sit down with you and talk yeah. to you about it. And, and also the 60s were not. Listen, this was not a time of residuals. The show was not in syndication. No, no. You know, the producers were making all the money, right? And maybe yeah, Fred was, and it was like it, it was like Major League Baseball before the free agency. Mm -hmm. You know, the owners you were owned it's like the old studios in the old days. You know, and they would swap. Metro Golden Mayor swapped uh, Carol Lombard and Clark Gable for Shirley Temple. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's amazing, and I mentioned the Kuganak because I think this is just a fascinating story, and I'll let you tell it. I mean, for those who don't know, Jackie Coogan 
everyone knows from Uncle Fester and, you know, obviously yeah. a show that was on at the same time as the Munsters. But even more important than that is he was a child actor. I mean, he was Charlie Chaplin's sidekick. Oh, yeah. What, what happened there? Gold standard. Yeah. The kid, what happened was, uh, yeah, this is before income tax as well. He made millions, millions and millions of dollars. Now, millions of dollars in the 20s, you know, <laughs> that's like tens of millions of dollars today. Oh, so absolutely. Very, absolutely. very, very wealthy. His parents basically stole all his money, left him penniless, or left him with a few thousand dollars and was next to penniless. And this was not uncommon back in the day that there was nobody watching the piggy bank for kid actors. There was a few other kid actors in the day too that were making a lot of money. And unless your parents were honest and above board and, and forthcoming and, and you know they could steal you blind if allowed to do so. There was no watchdog committee. So the Jackie Coogan law was passed and put into law to protect kid actors. I believe the actual, the, the structure of it is 25%, I think is what's supposed to be saved, which may not sound like a lot, but you figure your agent gets 10%. Taxes take for me was about forty percent because you don't have any write offs. You know, you're right. not you're not, you have no dependents. You're a kid. Sure. So between that forty percent and the ten percent for the agent and twenty five percent for your for you, that left another twenty five percent for the family because a lot of times when a kid's acting, the family gets disrupted and certain costs have to be incurred right. to keep the kid in front of the camera by hiring someone to babysit or drive or cook or whatever. Right. Yeah. So that's pretty much I believe that's where the final structure came out that twenty five percent needs to be set aside. Well, such a great law that that happened. So, all right, well, we better start talking monsters a little bit, or, or some of my listeners are going to have steam coming out of their ears, okay. uh, like Grandpa. <laughs> um, and we talked about how you got the gig, and, and, and yep. I wanted to talk about the lot, which you've already covered, which is great. In fact, folks that don't know it, Butch has written this fantastic book that I love that it's got everyone's favorite episodes you collected from around the country. It's called Munster Memories, a coffin table book. I mean, what a great name, first of all. That's, that's just so terrific. And we're going to link to that. But you must have got so many great stories from people you know, in that book. Well, I know that's, how, that's how I came up with the name, uh, Munster yeah. Memories. I've um, been lucky enough to sit at the table and, and uh, people come up. And it's funny, as you're sitting there and you can see a sea of people looking at you and you're kind of looking back with a curtain behind you. There's nobody back here. And to see the smiles and the eyes light up and, you know, older people grab their grandson by the hand and run him over to the table to point out what they watched when they were a little kid and how important this was. When I used to run home from school and get my snack out and I watched this show. And I mean, it's just, it's just smiley. Yep. Warm, I ate a lot of yodels feelings. watching you, Eddie. Well, it's you. those warm, fuzzy <laughs> feelings that you, that you, that you're such a part of these people's lives <laughs> and brought so much joy to them. And then people just come up and they just, radiate happiness so i thought to myself i go you know this is a pretty unique situation that i'm in here this is this is nice i don't know these people but but you're part of their family in a really good way so i thought i go wouldn't it be cool to share all these great stories that these people have had and then sprinkle in some people that were actually involved in the show firsthand mm -hmm. my own personal memories and uh a few of the collector people because one of the things people don't realize is how heavily merchandise the monsters was huge success and to this day you can sort of judge a show's longevity by, are they still selling toys? Are they still mm -hmm. selling t-shirts? And they are. And when I walk through an airport with a Munster shirt on, it's amazing how many people, I love that show. You know, they don't know who I am from Adam, right. which right. is fine. Mm -hmm. But it's amazing how it resonates with people that they uh, remember the logo. And it's global. Global. It's not just the States. Well, it, I mean, I, I think I read somewhere that, I mean, really the Munsters and maybe Star Trek are the two biggest yeah. merchandise shows on television. Really, they, they were definitely in the, in the Batman, top. maybe too, but you know. no, there's, there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of them, and and Munsters is definitely, and and an interesting thing to do is when you go on eBay, just to look for Munsters, you know, you see eight million posts, and it's expensive. The Munsters is very, I mean, there's the low end stuff too that has been reproed and, and came out recently, but the original real deal stuff from 1964 to 1966 with the Cairo View, you know, license thing on there, pricey stuff. Mm. So, what was your favorite episode? You asked everybody else. You must have. Well, I'm sure there's not maybe the, one, but maybe there's a couple. The, the Eddie's nickname comes into play, but mm. not so much because of the, the what we talked about. I liked right. it because of the scene with Dr. Dudley. I thought it was hilarious when. Louis, uh, Louis Nye, right? No, no. Louis Nye was Zombo, which is another Zombo. favorite. Okay. Gotcha. Dr. Dudley was Paul Lind. Oh, Paul Lind. Oh, my God. And he peeks through and he sees me with a bag over my head sitting next to Herman Munster. 
And he goes, oh, my goodness. He goes, can you imagine? <laughs> Mr. Munster's face isn't bad enough. Imagine what his son must look like if they've got to cover it with a paper bag. So that uh, great. pop and tranquilizers. The things we could get away with back in the old days versus what you can do today for Oh, I know. Absolutely. Is what makes it so much fun that grandpa's in the dungeon mixing up go-go pills for Eddie to run faster. I know. Just everything. So the things that were acceptable. Exactly. And I like to answer Zombo. Zombo, Eddie's nickname, and Hot Rod Herman, maybe Googie. Come back a little Googie because Bill Mooney was visiting. Right. It was fun to work with. From Lost in Space. Oh, yeah, and, and three Twilight Zones. I was always jealous of him because I yep. love Twilight Zone. I didn't One of the greatest more. Twilight Zones of all he did three. of all time. Yeah, yeah, he really just just fantastic. And, you know, there's so many wonderful memories from those days and that, that have to stay with you, you know, and, and yeah. I, I, you know, and, and I don't think many people realize, and it's honestly something I, di- I didn't know until, you know, I was in my 20s and kind of working in the business, is that there were only two seasons. I mean, there were 70 episodes. It wasn't 13 episodes. We're talking 70 episodes. But yeah. the Monsters were very successful for two seasons, and that was it. But yep. people have seen those 70 episodes 75 times each. So it's almost like it went on as long as Game of Thrones or something like that. It's one of the few shows that actually has been successful in the sub-100 syndication. You know, that's the, the, the yeah. number that has to be achieved. What we did is uh, they did the Munster movie, which helped a lot right after the show. Right. We introduced the Munsters to the rest of the world because a lot of times the other countries don't get reruns and syndication until a year or two or three later. So the fact that the feature was released right after it and went global, that introduced the world to the Munsters. And then when they offered up the show for syndication, it was an easy sell. Exactly. As we talked about, it was it was kind of a normal family in many ways. So you've had... Why don't we start? We'll start with Marilyn because you you experienced the change in the Marilyn. The first Marilyn decided to go back to New York to be with her boyfriend, and they yep. found Pat Priest, who most people didn't realize Marilyn even changed. Yeah, it was a very smooth transition, unlike the Dick York, Dick Sargent. Oh, uh, worst of all time. <laughs> yeah, Dick York was was very, very, very much the. I mean, Elizabeth Montgomery was great, but Dick York was a must oh. needed that show he was the perfect comic foil fantastic you know, larry to larry tate yep oh just uh, just terrific and then of course things people don't realize Yvonne carlo was not the original choice in the pilot in fact lily's name was phoebe and yep. they didn't like the mix and they also didn't like the mix with the with the little boy who played Eddie, Happy, what was his last name? Derman. Happy Derman, who was not so happy if you watched that that pilot, <laughs> um, was a very different character <laughs> than, 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 than Eddie became. But they brought in Yvonne DiCarlo, I mean, this wonderful movie, act, you know, film actress. That's That, that, that doesn't happen in 1964, no. right? No, Never. That was one of the, that was another part of it. I mean, the, the Ten Commandments, Salome, this is, this is, you know, big time. There were a lot. There's a there's a list of you know why the show was successful and her her being cast as Lily and handling that character the way she did was a big big was a big factor because Fred and Al were comedy team from New York and they had their their shtick going which was funny and he was tall and you know huge and she was the matriarch of the household so she played everything with her arms in the air because she had to make herself bigger than life because she was up against a seven footer and a six foot three uh, penguin. Right, uh, and a comedy team. These are guys that were on Car yeah. 54. They they had their shtick. They had this relationship. These were, I mean, these guys, honestly, if they had just gone on the road and done comedy for 10 years, hysterical. Absolutely. Yeah, they they thought know. she was a bad choice, and she proved them wrong. It was important that she was uh, part of the show. And uh, and it was, you know, we had a lot of you know, special effects for being early in the special effects world. Yes. Spot. We had a lot of fun with them. We had the coolest house. We had now, special effects, if I recall, some of the people that did special effects went on to Amblin and Lucas. Yeah. Yeah. Chuck and Davey. Each one of them. One, wow. I, I don't know who went to who, but yeah, they both wound up earlier in their careers. And, you know, Amblin is based at Universal. And, right. you know, Lucas, Lucasfilm went up to uh, the Bay Area. But, yeah, they both uh, – it was fun. These, and it was just two guys. Two guys doing all special effects. And uh, unless, you know, you had the, the grips that were pulling the ropes to lift me through the ceiling or right. to uh, manipulate spot under the stairs. But yeah, they were the, they were the uh, special effects team, just Chuck and Davey. And it's, and, and, and the special effects are, are fantastic. And then you think, okay, 
one of these guys went and did ET and the other guy probably did Star Wars. I mean, it's 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 absolutely, absolutely incredible to realize what grew from, you know, the, the, this these two seasons on CBS. I know. I know. It's crazy. Just, you know, and and like you said, having Yvonne DiCarlo as as, you know, the perfect foil for 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 Fred Gwynn was was amazing. And um, I'm, I'm also a. The Ten Commandments junkie, and you know, so far, you know, I, always of make, Moses. I always make fun of Six Degrees of Separation, you know, Kevin Bacon, right in Hollywood. So, with that in mind, Lily Munster was married to Moses in the Ten Commandments, so that makes Charles and Heston in the Ten Commandments my, my, uh, my dad. <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't go through the commandments, I wouldn't put anyone through that. We're, we all, we, we've all broken, uh. A bunch of them here and no, there. You know, it was, it was it, and that's, that's just the universal stuff. I was lucky enough to work at all the studios, and uh, I never, you know, I could have done more work, but I was never an actor. I was just sort of the kid that could handle the uh, the hobby that became acting. That was gonna, like I say, the money was gonna finance my race car. I never anticipated working past the, the age of twenty one in the business. It was never a calling for me. Right, it came it came easy. And I probably should have gotten behind, not as a director. I, the last thing I wanted to do, everybody wants to direct it. To me, I was like, that's more work than acting. Why would I want to but take you, that on? You loved cars. I mean, you yeah, you, and you still love cars. And yep. and you, you had the, I mean, people don't, not everybody knows this name, George Barris. But you have to realize that every car that you've ever looked at in your life from television and the movies that, yep. that meant something to you, George Barris put together the monster coach. George Barris did the Batmobile. And I'm just throwing two out. As a kid, that must have I been mean, literally a kid in a candy store for you, right? Well, it was. I had a little Wednesday regiment. What I would do is I would get a 90-minute lunch on Wednesday. Normally, it's 60 minutes, so I'd have this extra half an hour because they would give me an extra half an hour at the back end of the day. And I would go down to George's shop, and there happened to be a little it was called Toddy's and it was a little hamburger hot mm -hmm. dog shack right across the street that I enjoyed their apple pie and their hot dog. So I'd have my little routine, go down there and I'd eat lunch, run across the street to go see what mm -hmm. George was up to. Then I would go to the hobby shop, which was down the street to buy my slot car stuff mm -hmm. because back in the sixties, slot cars were huge for people. And I had a very large slot car track at the house. So I would pick up a piece of slot car track or whatever I needed for my cars, see George, have my pie and get back to the studio. And I did that every Wednesday for two years. And in that two-year window, George not only created a bunch of great cars, but he was a master marketer. He was like a P.T. Barnum. Oh, absolutely. Um, he, in the 50s, was was customizing cars just to be customizing cars for the average average people. And just, you know, 50 mercs and this and that. But then he started getting into the B-movies where there were all these movies about hot rod girls and sweaters and, and blacktop burnouts. And it was sort of a, a drive-in movie type of thing. Right. Where he got into that. And then when he got into the movie business, his name became so synonymous that movie stars started wanting to get their cars customized by him. And then that led to him buying the property up in Hollywood and moving up there because he was he had a he had a fire down in uh, I think he was down in Linwood. And he moved up to Hollywood, bought the property up there, which he still is in, and started customizing movie cars, and that led to the TV cars. But all the time he was marketing himself and getting the word out and doing the shows. And that's why he was considered a master marketer. And I told people, I said, of everybody's Rolodex in Hollywood, I'll put George's up against anybody's. Oh, with, he, everybody, everybody knew him. Without a doubt. And, you know, another thing that I actually did not realize is, uh, and there are probably a lot of reasons the Munsters went off the air after those two years. But one of the reasons was, was Batman. Um, nope. Here comes the, the show. Main the main reason, I guess. Here comes the show in color, first of all. And for me, I was six years old, so I kind of started with Batman and then went to the Monsters um, as, as syndication began. But here's the guy that designed designed the car. You you continue to love these cars. You continue to this day doing this this program uh, uh, called Coach to Coast, where you're traveling around America to meet all of these you know kind of mm -hmm. small town little yep. heroes. And, and, and the point I wanted to get to is that as this is happening in your career, you talk about this in the coach to coach thing. And I talked about how much I love music. And, and I know you mentioned the Beatles came on the set in 1964, 65. You happened to not be on the set that day, I think, yeah. for whatever reason. But a lot of musicians came by. But if you take the Beatles, you got to take the monkeys. All right. Yep. 
And you appeared in one of the really, I think, one of the best episodes ever written of the Monkees, which is a wonderful Christmas episode. And I know yeah. you're proud about that. Tell us about that experience. I got to see Mike Nesmith and, and Mickey Dolenz last year at the Count Basie Theater here in Red Bank. Peter Tork was supposed to be part of that tour. Unfortunately, sadly, it passed away. Yeah. So I'm so glad I got to see some version of them 50 years later. But you saw them in their prime. Yes. When I was acting, I would pretty much never tell anybody in school what I was up to. That was pretty much, I went to school and I did this, and I did this, separate worlds. But when I got that part for the monkeys, you got to remember how big the monkeys were in 1968, yeah. late 67, early 68. They're huge. Uh, they had a TV show. It was just, I mean, they were everywhere. There was this music was on the radio and TV shows on this. It was kind of like that perfect storm when the blues brothers where the number one album, the number one show, and the number yeah. one movie. Is, the greatest just, writers for their songs. Yeah, you, I couldn't, mean, you yeah. couldn't go anywhere. Neil Diamond. Yeah. So here I am, not only on the show, but on the show as the full-on co-star. I mean, it was Oh, like, absolutely. We were like equals for like a week. It was like, it was their show, but almost every scene I was in with them. It was very much, a, it was very much Melvin Vandersnoot was a major factor in the writing of this show. So I got a chance to really get to know them. And you got to remember that this is also Tiger Beat and 16 Magazine are happening. And, and Sally Field is coming on the set because she's doing the Flying Nun. And her and Davey are. Oh, my God. So she was she dressed as the Flying Nun when she would come over to, to meet Davey? With the head, she didn't have the headpiece on, though. <laughs> uh, Sister Patrol would have come over and taken yeah, her right yeah. away. <laughs> so that was interesting. So, yeah, the, the, the interesting thing about doing that episode was really fun to work with the guys. It was interesting how in the, they were so different. There was like four unique characters which probably played into why the show was so successful obviously davy i got along best with peter because he was the hippie and yeah. at that time i was all about hippie beads and squaw boots and this sure. and that. mike you know the intellectual reserved and mickey is crazy mickey mm -hmm. but me and mickey had the most in common because we were both child actors you were 15 16 at 14. the time 14, 14. Okay. I, was in, yeah, yeah. I was in the eighth grade okay that was a very cool week. And here's what I really enjoy about that episode, even more so than that, is it showed at the end of it, number one, they do the Ryuchu a cappella singing, uh -huh. spot on, great harmonies. Beautiful, beautiful. Then you got to remember, it's Christmas time. So you got this really Christmas feel-good thing, and you got this show, and you got Ryuchu. And then at the end, I love the way that they introduced everybody behind the scenes who makes the show happen. Broke down the fourth wall, and that minute and a half of him bringing everybody on in front of the camera is very much exactly how that set was it was a very fun place to be yeah it was fun it was wacky it was zany it was crazy they got the show done it was popular they could they could get away with with being themselves it wasn't stuffy hollywood it's a wonderful scene and and i'm, I'm probably yeah. going to link to it on the show page because i actually watched that over the last couple of days because i remembered how much that how cool that scene was and it is and, and it, you know as, it, as a monkey fan really, it was, yeah it, it was really, really resonated how that show was done and yeah it happened to be christmas time but we didn't film it at christmas time you know we did it in the middle of october i think but the point was it really it really resonated out how the monkeys operated and how much fun it was to be around those guys mm -hmm. i want to pick two other uh i mean there's a, listen Butch has been on a lot of shows. My Three Sons, Adam 12, Marcus Welby. You sat and watched them walk on the moon with Marcus eight, Welby. Eight right? My Three Sons. I looked it up. Eight. I thought I'd always done a couple. I, next to Meredith Baxter or next to Meredith McRae, she did like 12 episodes and I did eight. So next to her, I'm the most wow. guest starred person on My Three Sons. Well, I, I know you did a lot of appearances yeah. and, and I think it was the pilot of Marcus Welby. Yeah. I know you tell the story about Robert Young and the men landing on the moon. Yeah. I, I think that's a great story. Yeah, we was, it was about 10 days before my birthday. I'm 15, and uh, they're landing on the moon, and he was kind enough to put TV sets in the four corners of the soundstage and let everybody uh, take the afternoon off while we're watching the moon landing. Wow, just, just terrific. And, you know, I don't think a lot of people realize, in fact, in having this conversation, I you know, happen to be holding up the book right oh, now, yeah. but, but, you know, Phantom Tollbooth, every child read this book. I mean, this was just, just a classic, and the character of Milo was, it, it was something that stays with you forever. And ladies and gentlemen, Butch Patrick was Milo in the beautiful film version of Phantom Tollbooth. And besides being wonderful in that, you got to be alongside the man of a thousand voices. I mean, you can name anybody in the world, but Mel Blanc, there's yeah. just nobody that compares to everything <laughs> he did with Warner Brothers Looney Tunes from Bugs to Porky to Wile E. Coyote. What was it like? I mean, that's something I would think you remember. I did, and I, that was 
battling it out. For, I wanted to do the monkey. I, most of the time I went on interviews, I give it my best shot. And then I left and if I got it, I got it. It was not, you know, mm-hmm. it was what it was. I didn't really think about it again. But the Phantom Toll Booth, it took a lot of interviews. And I, it, I was probably did about four or five callbacks on that. And it was down to me and Sheldon. And the, Sheldon Collins was a friend of mine. We'd worked together. And he was a dark-haired Jewish boy. And I was this look and he was that look. And they mm-hmm. couldn't figure out what look they wanted to go for. And luckily for me, they went with my look. So mm-hmm. I wound up getting it. Working with Chuck Jones was a real treat. If you ever see the movie, there's actually a cameo. He does his Hitchcock on the uh, cable car yep. sitting next to me. What a great time it was. What a great book. What a great movie. And the fact that I was lucky enough to pick a few really gold star type quality things. The Monkeys episode comes to mind. A couple of Disney flicks. But the Phantom Tollbooth definitely rates right up there as one of my... Uh, go to uh, when they say what was some what what are some of your favorite roles mm-hmm. i even like the name milo yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's a great it is a great name it is a great name and we're just going to skip over lidsville not for any reason other than we could go on forever but if you yeah. know sid marty croft anybody who was around in the late 60s and early 70s and and saw the hey. kind of programming it was a very cool concept though i mean it really was something very unique you work with charles nelson riley that had to be unique as well, obviously. <laughs> well, the Crofts did a, a huge body of work. I was lucky enough to be yeah. on their third show, and yeah. they went up a lot, a lot, a lot of other stuff. And I was happy to have done it, and it was only 11 weeks in the summer of 71. But it was a crazy wild time. I'll give yep. you that. And then you went to film a movie in Brazil. I think that was one of the – 1969. And I love what, you, what your sister said about you. Yeah, this is an example of you never know what's going to happen early on. I said, you know, you're going on, and I'm a big believer. This particular movie in, uh, in 1969, I'm out in the valley visiting my girlfriend, and my best friend, Rick Natalie, is younger than me, so he doesn't have a car or a driver's license. He asked me would I drive him to an interview. I go, sure. Sunset Boulevard, pull up, go in, go up to, to the interview with him. And he goes into the room, and I sit on the couch waiting. And as he comes out, Hall Bartlett, who is the writer, producer, director of this film, looks at me and he goes, do you have a minute? And I go, sure. And Rick sits down and I go in and I come out with the part that he went up for. So it was just happenstance. And had I never been sitting yeah. on the couch or had I gone downstairs or had I, you know, whatever, for whatever reason I took him and I wound up getting this part three days later, I'm in Brazil, no right. teacher, no parent staying in a suite. And all I really have to do is show up for work. And after I'm off work, I can run off with the French camera crew, mm-hmm. or I can run off with the Americans that are across the street that are at the Pan American school, or I can go off and see Pele and, and chat with the soccer, the, the Santos mm-hmm. uh, world cup soccer club. So I'm down there for three months and I'm partying that, you know, I'm only 16, but sure. I just started experimenting with stuff in Hollywood because everybody else was. Right. It was a very wide open time. It was yeah. psychedelic. I mean, when I was doing the Phantom Tollbooth in 67 and 8 up in Frisco, we were right at the Haight-Ashbury corner. And there, yep. you know, I mean, we're listening to the dead. And, yep. the, you know, and, yeah, and it's all and, happening uh, in front of you. The Jefferson's, entire generation. Yeah, just, yep. I, was, I was right in the middle of it. It was. Yep. I mean, I was right there. So when I came back, my sister at my A8 when I picked up my chip for my uh, sobriety, she had said, yes, he left as Richie Cunningham, and three months later, he came back as John Lennon, which yeah. was pretty accurate. It's really quite a story. You know, there's always a bit of a price for fame, and, and, yeah. and one of the things that I really admire about you is how open you've been about the struggles you had for, for really four decades with alcohol and drugs. Four, and yeah, before, Fortunately, you were offered help, and you've been sober, I think, now 10 years, right? It'll be 10 years at Thanksgiving. Oh, well, what a wonderful time to, to yeah. celebrate that. I'm, I'm going to think about that this Thanksgiving. And, Thank you. And, and what I love about it is that it wasn't, you know, that all these people were surrounding you and, and making you do this. You, you kind of knew you needed help. And, oh, yeah. and, and, and people did not, you know, they, and I noticed this when I worked for Larry King and, 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 and some other celebrities. Nobody ever wanted to say no to anybody. You know, everybody was afraid. Yeah. And, and that's Paul, how these Paul things Peter- happen. Yeah, Paul Peterson, who was on the Donna Reed show, is Jeff Stone. And he actually was the creator of A Minor Consideration after his good friend Rusty Hamer killed himself from uh, Make Room for Daddy. Mm-hmm. He created this uh, watchdog committee organization called A Minor Consideration just for that purpose to help kids that uh, pretty much are told they're never told no. And he, he used that term. He goes, you know, when you're around all these yes people, all they want to do is use you and you know, you're supplying the drugs and the party and the money. And, you know, nobody wants to say, no, this is bad for you because they're riding your coattails. And, and Paul used that as, a, as Michael Jackson as an example. Nobody yeah. ever told him no. Exactly. And, it's, and, that, and he's very, very right. And, the, and I 
because I wanted to be accepted and I wanted to be a regular guy. And all my friends were, you know, were just drinking beer. And, is, and another thing is partying back in the old days is much different than partying today. Oh, it's a different, it's, I know. It's, it's, it's yeah. not close to no. even being two, the same two different, the opiate thing, two different the opiates worlds. and the big pharma thing. Back in the old days, it was buy a pound of weed, sell 10 lids, keep six and give it away. It right. was not yeah. a profit thing. It was not money motivated. It was sharing the spirit of, the time and passing the joint around and it was all peace and love. It was a whole different world. Right. And as you were getting help at, at, at Oasis, I think you, you, you know, yeah, you, Oasis, wind up, yeah. you wound up getting prostate cancer in the middle of all of yeah, this. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, But you've recovered was, very uh, well from that. I'm happy to say. Had I not, had I not been in Oasis, another thing about one door closes, another door opens. Uh, uh, luckily for me, I was in, I was in there and there was a doctor who was a world-class doctor in there for another situation of his own. And we became friends and when I found out I had it, he uh, called up his rock star ninja buddy doctors at uh, in California, St. John's. Mm-hmm. He's an SC Board of Regents doctor, and he has a lot of other rock star ninja buddies. And it's, had it not been for him to get me through the red tape to get me into surgery immediately, uh, I probably wouldn't have been able to uh, be cancer-free today because I was right on the edge of a small mass with big numbers. And they actually told me during pathology after it came back with 0001 they said, we thought it had spread to your bones. We didn't want to say anything because it just looked like there was too much, too big, too big a numbers for such a small mass, but they were lucky. But that, mm. and I, that would have, had I not been an oasis, you know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have addressed it. Oh, well, so thankful for that. Um, I, I just wanted to go back to the eighties just for a minute, because I, I think many people what happened to Eddie. Yeah, exactly. We played it earlier in the show and, and people might, you know, for some people may not, know exactly what the story is behind this. This was an iconic video. This was a hit on MTV. What's the story behind there? Okay, the story behind this. Now, Sugarloaf, was Sugarloaf, first of all, involved in that? Sugarloaf was, no, Sugarloaf was behind the 1972 Metro okay. Media record contract right. Right. that they let Bobby Sherman go and the right. people that produced Sugarloaf were looking for a replacement mm-hmm. and Lidsville was on the air and they thought, we can take the star from a Saturday morning show and, and put him into the uh, thing. And I actually did American bandstand headlining over Loggins and Messina at that time, but I didn't sing. And I told them that I didn't sing and they go, it doesn't matter. And then I originally like to jokingly call myself the original Munster Manili. <laughs> oh, tell Cameron Crowe, that'd be a, a great well, sequel to almost famous. <laughs> and you know, I'll tell you what, during that, that time is I'm on the, I'm on the flight flying from LA back from New York to LA sitting next to Danny Sugarman, who oh. was the Doors manager, and sure. he was writing for Rolling Stone magazine. Mm-hmm. He gave us a good review for the I.O. I.O. song that the Bee Gees wrote, and the, and Sugarloaf did the music, and we became friends, and that in itself is another story about hanging out at the Continental Hyatt House and driving Iggy Pop to the Whiskey A Go-Go because his limo didn't show up. And uh, so there, everybody should be, the, the thing about the Metro Media Record year was everybody should be a rock star for at least six months and have loads of money and have <laughs> and have this and have the uh, a and r man for metro media being he's partying using you as his good time but the bottom line is you get to get all the perks out of it because uh you're you're, you're the uh the talent absolutely so so what what put together the video the whatever happened to okay, Eddie? Whatever happened how did Eddie? that get down mtv i meet a friend and he has a friend who actually i met as a childhood friend his mom and my mom were friends a guy named Rick havoc and Rick Havoc is a studio drummer and a synth drummer for Pink Floyd. He programs stuff. And he knows a producer who's got a little recording studio in Long Beach called Sound Sorcery. We all get together and decide we're going to make a rock video because we really, really thought this MTV thing was cool and it was brand new and we wanted to make rock videos. So we didn't have anything to do. And I said, why don't we do Whatever Happened to Eddie, which I had the song that I'd written the lyrics to, and we produced it, and and he, Phil Cohn was his name, and Phil Cohn funded it, and he was a bass player that had lived with Stuart Copeland from the Police before the Police in Europe with a group called Curved Air. Mm-hmm. So one thing led to another, and we produced this video and and got it onto MTV without a record deal, which at that time was unheard of. Yeah, they aired it on Super Bowl Sunday. It's a catchy little Monsters tune. That's uh, right, it aired on with Super lyrics. Bowl Sunday. Mm-hmm. The B side is uh, Little Monsters, which mm-hmm. has kind of a reggae steel drummy feel to it, and even to this day. Over 30, uh, oh God, 40 years, coming up on 40 years later, it's still a pretty cool little song. And everybody, oh, when they go to radio stations and do interviews, everybody has it in their, uh, 
in their library and they always play it because for that particular song to be still popular or at least maybe not popular but still remembered is quite an honor well it's a staple on my friend rich russo's show on sirius called anything anything that he yeah. uh, that he plays all the time and and you also did you know uh, it's only halloween which was uh, another uh, interesting video yeah, I, this is I, later I, on yeah, I did that recently for a gentleman. He uh, just, you know, he he's a, he's a good friend, and he mm-hmm. wanted to take something to the Grammys. So we produced It's Only Halloween, and we did the video, and it was fun. It was cute. It was, you know, kind of like, you know, uh, it's a Halloween-driven concept. Exactly. And Halloween's yeah. a big deal for, for, for you and in your business for, for many, many years, right? It is. And right. I've been, and the thing about the Munsters, it's been really, really good to me. It's a feel-good type of show. It's got longevity. It's got family values. It's got multi-generational, you know, everybody can watch it. People love watching it with the the younger generation to introduce them to it because they know that they're going to laugh at it as well. It's been reproduced and remastered. And and I just did a thing with Rob Zombie doing commentary for the new uh, Blu-ray DVD of Munster Go Home, which was really cool because one of the things about the Munsters is you'll find some very, very big stars are, are crazy about the show. Hence Rob Zombie, hence Howard Stern, Mm -hmm. Paul McCartney, it's got a very good fan base. And I mean, I mean, literally I'll give you an example of guys uh, from ACDC, right? Weren't they? Uh... Uh, no, but fallout boy did it. Oh, fallout uh, boy. Right. Oh no. ACDC loves the show. Cause a friend of mine yeah. is their, their lighting director. And I met Angus and, uh, and the, and the group down of all places in Adelaide. Down in right. I knew you had a connection with Angus. Yeah. Oh, that yeah, was, no, no. That was pretty cool. Yeah, you know, you, all the other men. I mean, I'm lucky enough. You're, you were talking about Patty Smythe is right. Lita Ford. And I have become really good friends over the last 10 years. And she's huh? actually had, her on stage and who would have thought I'm hanging around with Lita Ford and, and Dee Snyder and, and Ace Freely and all these great rock and roll stars that just love the Munsters. It's well, there's, there's, there's a connection. Alice there's, Cooper. Who, yeah, of course, Vince. Alice Cooper. Let's not oh. Forget Vince. oh boy. What a wonderful guy to work with. I worked with him on an organization called little kids rock. He's a, just a tremendous, tremendous guy to work with. Listen, you like to work. You've kept very busy. We talked about the coach to coach series which I want everybody, we're going to link to on, on YouTube, which I think airs Saturday nights. Oh, no, Saturday nights you have the Macabre Theater, which is on the U2 America Network, yeah. which I they think say, is... They, they, they change it to YTA, but yes, U2 America, YTA. Owned by Universal, right? Isn't is something no, Universal? No, actually, I don't know who... Uh, I know that uh, Mark Burnett was the, was the brains behind it and that developed it, the guy that did Survivor and Shark Tank. Yep. Before we finish, has the quarantine changed your plans a lot, like everybody else this year? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's yeah. the quarantine, and then then the led to the protests. It's like God. It's yeah. like I, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the '60s, so yeah, it's just like deja vu. And it's funny that I don't particularly, uh, you know, I don't know where it's going. So all you can really mm-hmm. do is count your blessings. I'm with family. I'm safe. I'm in a nice part of the country. If you have to hunker down somewhere, yeah, technology allows me to interact and right. uh, communicate with people and do this kind of thing. And all I can do is. Part of my sobriety is to be honest about my own things and anybody that ever reaches out and asks for help, be of service to them, makes it easier for me to stay sober. And I've got a lot of stuff on the horizon that we're going to be doing. Uh, I can't wait to get back on the road and do uh, what I really want to do is, you know, I want to do the motor coach interviews with people that are in the RV lifestyle. Because one of the things, see, my love of the road started off with my grandmother and me traveling cross country in the 59th big Cadillac doing antiquing. And, and doing it at 45 miles an hour across the country. And, but for me, I got to see everything this country has to offer from the state parks, national parks, meteor crater, anything of interest. She stopped for me. And I felt like I, I had an extended Griswold vacation as a kid. <laughs> well, I tell you, I want to finish off. This is a question I ask all my guests. And I always have to give credit to Tim Ferriss, uh, who in his book, Tribe of Mentors, where he speaks to all kinds of folks from all different yeah. parts of the world. He asked this question, but I love it so much that I throw it in my show. So let's say you were given a giant billboard. You could write any message that you wanted to get out there on it. What would it be, Butch, and why? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) It's not easy, I know. Appreciate, you know, get a gratitude list. Get a gratitude list and appreciate what you have. No. That's so true. And that is a wonderful response. And, and boy, that's a billboard needed all over the world today. So Butch Patrick, thank you so much for spending time today with me and my audience on Financially Speaking. I can only imagine how wonderful you must feel every day that you are part of something very special that will last forever. And most importantly, make people smile. And on behalf of all the Munster fans out there who still smile every day at some point, 
on this globe, somebody's watching a Munster episode while we're taping this podcast. Thank you. And we're going to link up to several of the sites that I mentioned. Munster.com is under construction right yeah. now. Right. And do me a favor. If you can sit sure. behind me, keys to my castle. Yes. That's my sister's company. And it's keysmycastle.com. Okay. I would like to do that people, especially in their hunkered down. She makes a wonderful line of gifts. They're actually front door keys that are artwork and office Great. keys. And I'd like to give her a plug. Well, you just did, and we're going to certainly put a link there. And and that's I was wondering what I was looking at, admiring that uh, as we were speaking. It's just yep, it's really great. So that's our show for this week. Please remember to subscribe, share this episode with all your networks. I'm certain if you know anyone with a heartbeat, they've watched the monsters. So <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thank you to the folks at Resonate Recording for all your work, the quick turnaround, which I know you'll give me on this very special episode. And remember folks, when saving for your financial future, always pay yourself first. Have a great week.